Well, this morning we're going to continue. Continue in Romans chapter 12, the last half. <laughs> and you're thinking, where else would we be, right? We're in our third month of exploring. But hasn't it just flown by? I just, you can hardly imagine where the time has gone. Third month of exploring the body of Christ in the world, and we've been living in these texts because they teach us so much. Romans 12, and we were looking at 1 Corinthians 12 earlier on as well. Because here's the reality. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and by that I mean you're a person who confesses with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead after he died on the cross for the sins of people, you're committed to living for him and not for yourself, you're keenly aware of needing the power of his spirit in your life and and you want more of that power, then what that means is you're a member of the church which the scripture often refers to as the body of Christ, which means you are in this together with others who are very different from you, but who are parts of that same body that God has put together, and those folks are living for the same thing, and that is for God's glory. You may know the name Heather King. She's a writer, commentator for NPR. She writes about her initial experience with the church. She says this, nothing shatters our egos like worshiping with people we did not handpick. The humiliation of discovering that we are thrown in with extremely unpromising people. People who are broken, misguided, wishy-washy, out for themselves. People who are us. But we don't come to church to be with people who are like us in the way we want them to be. We come because we have staked our souls on the fact that Christ is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. And the church is the best place, really the only place, to be while we all struggle to figure out what that means. We come because we'd be hard-pressed to say which is the bigger scandal of the two. One, that God loves us, or that he loves everyone else. Amen. That is the nature of the church. And as we have said often, it is messy. Any of you uh, try last Sunday's assignment? Do you remember last Sunday's assignment? Those of you who are here, the possibility that we would go to the Father and we would say, we would say, Lord, who are some folks in this small body that we are a part of that I don't know real well? How could I get to know them so that I could minister to them, so that I could, remember last week's exhortations, love them with a brotherly love, with a love that is family-like, a love that is committed, a love that is determined to be together because God has placed us together in this family, and a love that honors them, puts them in a place of honor before myself. We were all just real eager to run out and do that last week, weren't we? Those were distinctive exhortations that Paul was giving to Christians in Rome because Roman society was clearly divided along lines of class. Slaves versus Roman citizens. Rich versus poor. Those sorts of divisions. And for the Christians in Rome to be devoted to one another and to others who were from a different social class to place them in a position of honor above themselves, would have been an incredible witness to the love and the presence of God in their lives. 
It would have been then, and it would be now. Very, very similar culture. And if you think about it, all over the world, people are still divided by all kinds of categories. Categories of race, categories of of economy, categories of, of social status, background, memberships here or there. I'm reminded of this every time I walk through an airplane because I walk through the first class cabin to get to the cabin where the commoners and the lowlife sit because that's where I belong. And, and when I walk through the first class cabin, I think, wow, I'd like to be here. You know, there are like four chairs and there are 593 chairs in the commoner's cabin. These folks are all stretched out and they're eating filet mignon and being served a seven-course meal. Can you imagine if I should walk through that passage and one of the four people stands up and says, Oh, let me give you my seat. I'll go back there with the low life. You stay here. Yeah, when hell freezes over, right? That's the kind of impact that loving others as family and honoring them before ourselves has when God's people are committed to doing it. That's the spirit that Paul is talking about. Loving others as family, honoring them above ourselves, it's powerful and people notice that kind of behavior Why? Because that kind of behavior is rooted in the values of the kingdom of God and not of this world. And so I hope that you are becoming more and more convinced that this body life thing, it's not optional, it's not casual, it's it's not very good as a part-time activity. As Christians, we talk a lot about our witness to the world, and rightly so. We know that we should be concerned about it. Sometimes we are concerned about it. Body life is at the heart of our witness to the world those who are right around us, those who we work with, those that we go to school with, those that we are in social clubs with, those that we live in neighborhood communities with, those who know us well enough to hear our language. How do they hear us speak about the church? How do they hear us speak about those who are in the church? What do they see of our commitment to the local community, the local church? Those kinds of things speak volumes to people about the values of the kingdom of God and the truth of who Jesus is. So let's stand. And we're going to continue to read together from Romans 12 this morning, verses 11 to 14. And let's see what comes next in this this list of behaviors. Here we go, together. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, Faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. My brothers and sisters, this, again, is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Okay, we just read. Rachel, can we put those three back up? Several exhortations. But I want us to zero in on these three, and then we'll tie them in at the end to sort of the, the exhortations that kind of bookend them. Be joyful in hope. Be patient in affliction. Share with God's people in need. 
Be faithful in prayer is another one that Paul emphasizes there. What I'd like you to do is I'd like you to turn to your neighbor and ask them very quickly. We're only going to take a minute. What is the underlying theme that ties these together? What do you think's going on? Why is Paul addressing these? Go ahead. What's the underlying theme? Okay, you got 30 seconds. Five, four, three, two, one. Okay, we're done. What do you think? For the Spirit. Okay. Okay. He is definitely addressing believers in Rome. What might be going on in Rome? Someone else? Attitude. Absolutely. Attitude about what? Can I ask that? Oh. Okay. Attitude in, you know, if I don't have people in my life, I'm a pretty joyful person. (laughs) But people are a pain, right? And they think the same of me. Okay? Relationships. It's a choice. Yes. Absolutely. Anyone else? Okay. Good. Good. So, so true. Think in terms of the circumstances. It's important that we make that connection. We've, we've done a little bit of that. Rome, you recall, was a difficult place to live. Rome was, was, a, was a hard place to live. First of all, life is hard. We know that. Life is broken. Rick reminded us this, this morning. We live in a fallen world. Everything is broken. And that makes life very challenging. Rome was a difficult place, not only just because it was a broken place, but it was difficult to be a follower of Jesus in Rome, especially when the Caesar, who considered himself the Lord of Rome, began to hear about these Christians who talked about the Lord Jesus Christ. Wasn't real popular in his book. He considered it a challenge to his control and his reign over his people and his kingdom. It was incredibly challenging for, for, for Christians to live a life that was outward, that displayed the values of the kingdom because they desired to serve Jesus and obey Jesus more than they desired to serve the Caesar and obey Caesar. Paul died in Rome as a result of his faith in Jesus. But before his death, he wrote to Timothy, his son in the faith, and he reminded them, or him, he said, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now for sure, he was thinking of those who were living in the Roman Empire But I think the truth of that begins to spill beyond the borders of the Roman Empire and beyond that period in time. Paul's saying, so added to the normal challenges and burdens of living life in a fallen world comes the possibility of persecution and hardship because a person is a follower of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, do do you expect that life is going to bring extra challenges to you because you are his follower? Do I expect that? It seems to me that we should. Because we've said many times that the values of the kingdom of God clash with the values of the kingdom of this world. The values of the kingdom of our culture specifically. 
you know, to, to lift those up who are poor and oppressed, to willingly humble myself and honor them beyond myself, to look out for the needs of others before I look out for the needs of myself. On and on and on we could go about the values of the kingdom and how they clash with the values of the culture in which we live. We need, if we are serious about following Jesus, we need to seriously expect persecution and misunderstanding. Because if we're living in surrender to Jesus as Lord, and if we're being led by His Spirit, we will find ourselves, my friends, we will find ourselves at odds with the forces of darkness in, in many kinds of ways. And when that happens, and it was happening for the Christians in Rome, when that happens, how are we to respond? Well, the first exhortation that we've seen here together is Paul reminds the Roman believers, and I would say that he wants the Applewood believers too, to know this too. Be joyful in hope. Be joyful in hope. It's important that we understand Paul is not just saying here, oh, be hopeful. Like, maybe things will improve. Maybe a new Caesar will come along. Maybe some of the laws will change. Maybe oppression will be less. Maybe they'll ease up on taxes. Not unlike the kinds of things that people in our culture tend to put their hope in. Would you agree? Paul is saying, don't just be hopeful. Don't just put your hope in something. Paul is talking about the hope. The hope that we have in God because of His love for us demonstrated in Christ. Rick, do you have that text from Romans 5? Would you belt that out for us? Give a listen to what Paul says earlier in this same letter. Wow. Wow. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you about your hope. What are you putting your hope in? What are you counting on in this life? Paul wrote in this same letter to the Romans earlier, chapter 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? If that's not the rhetorical question of Scripture, I don't know what is. If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul is talking about ultimate things here. He's, he's reminding the believers, yes, life is hard. Life is unfair. Life is full of, of cruel twists and turns. But that's okay. Because you have peace with God. And this life that we're living, it's a breath. It's a moment in eternity. Paul is reminding the believers of Rome, be a people who are filled with joy because you know hope. And hope's name is Jesus. Be filled with joy. Be joyful, joy-filled with 
hope. If we are truly confident in our hope, and that hope is the loving, faithful character of God demonstrated to us through His Son, it doesn't mean that we are necessarily thrilled with the circumstances of life. Life is hard. You know, we don't run around and pretend we are these emotionalist, feeling-less people. Life is hard, and we feel pain, and we hurt. But, but over all of that, over all of that, is the unchanging character of a loving God who has demonstrated that love to us through the death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus. That is the source of our hope. And if that is the source of our hope, then we can be joyful. So we need to ask ourselves on a regular basis, Daily, when we are confronted with the hardships, where's my hope? Where's my hope here? You know, I, I read something this week that somehow got me interested in the Titanic. And so I began to read some facts about the Titanic. You probably know this. This just struck me as unbelievable. Aboard the Titanic... The law required that there be 962 lifeboat seats. And so they exceeded what the law required by putting 1,178 lifeboat seats. The problem is that they needed over 2,200 lifeboat seats on that boat. Really? Do you think the passengers knew that ahead of time? As they were walking up the gangway onto the boat? Oh, by the way, do you know there's not enough lifeboat seats here in case this ship goes down? Of course, it's not going to go down. It would take an act of God to sink this ship. They built a boat that didn't have enough seats for the people if the stupid thing sank. Not only were there not enough lifeboats to save everybody who went on board, but... But most of the lifeboats that were launched, you know this, they were not filled to capacity. For instance, historians tell us that, that the first one to launch, Lifeboat 7 from the starboard side, only carried 24 people despite having a capacity to carry 65. And originally, a lifeboat drill was scheduled to take place on board the Titanic on April 14, 1912. That's the day that the ship hit the iceberg. But for some unknown reason, Captain Smith canceled the drill. Many believe that had the drill taken place, more lives could have been saved. But not all of them, because there weren't enough lifeboat seats. The absurdity of that struck me. And yet, it's absurd because we know the facts. For the people on board, I'm sure that they didn't know the facts. My friends, bring it back to what we're talking about here this morning. Life in a fallen, broken world. Life that is full of pain and life that is full of hardship. Yeah, we feel that. We live that. But we've been given the information that we need in order to survive this life and move on into the next. Makes sense? We have been told what we need to survive. Brothers and sisters, valuable information that saves us for all of eternity. What are you putting your hope in? As we face the hard times, 
whatever they may be, we can, I think, be obedient to the second exhortation to be patient in affliction. Boy, this is a challenging one. I'd rather whine, quite frankly. But Paul uses a word here that's so distinctive. The word that we translate as patient comes from a word that is often used that, that means to, to remain, to stay where you are. Really? Life gets hard and painful. I want to flee. No, no. Remain. Persevere. Endure. To, bra- to, to bear bravely and, and calmly. You remember what the Apostle James wrote? I used to think that he was on drugs when he wrote this. <laughs> Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. What? Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. You hear it? Paul and James, and we could read a number of passages from Peter as well, all agree that there is purpose in the trials and the tests that we face in life. They're not random. They're not the result of bad karma. God is not sitting in his heaven looking down and thinking, whoa, how did they get themselves into that mess and how am I going to get them out of this? No. The one who is our hope is at work through the uncomfortable circumstances. He's refining us and he's molding our character. And as Paul wrote again earlier in chapter 8 of the letter to Romans, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And so out of that confidence comes our ability to, to share and to be hospitable to not keep all of the bubbles for ourselves, but in fact, to give liberally and, and, and generously from what God has, has given to us. There's another exhortation in this text. We didn't put it on the screen. But Paul says, be faithful in prayer. Be faithful in prayer. Do you know what that word faithful means? It means faithful. It actually means devoted. Be devoted to prayer. Remember when we talked about being devoted to one another in brotherly love? There's that sense of, I'm going to stick with you and you're going to stick with me no matter what. That's devotion. It's relational word, being devoted to one another. Paul is saying, be devoted to prayer. Be devoted to God in prayer Remember, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have the most privileged position in the world. We are children of God. That's what John said. His little letter at the end of the New Testament. What great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. You're looking pretty excited about that. <laughs> Woohoo! We are children of God. Do you think maybe we ought to talk to our papa once in a while about life and its circumstances and the hard things and to find his presence and his sure character always there and always ready to be with us? Are you faithfully in conversation with your father? Abba, as Paul told these same Roman believers, if you're not in 
constant conversation. Why not? He is Abba. That is a term of intimacy. And it is a privileged relationship that only the children of God have with the creator of the universe. That just blows me away. Wow. Okay, we need to close this morning. And as we do that, Rachel, can we put those last two exhortations on the screen? Real quickly, these are sort of the, the, the bookends on, on either end. And the first one, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. What does that look like? Well, the language structure that we've just looked at together, the content of those other exhortation really flows out of this first one. What does that look like? Well, it looks like a person who is joyful in hope because they know that their hope is in God's love for us in Christ Jesus. A person who's never lacking in zeal but keeping their spiritual fervor serving the Lord is someone who exercises patience in affliction. They recognize that there is value in this. There is purpose in this. This is not random in my life, but my God is big enough to be orchestrating the events of my life, even using the crap that piles up around me to mold me and shape me and make me more like His Son, Jesus. That is a person who is never lacking in zeal, but keeps their spiritual fervor. They realize, I'm not living in a chance universe. Glory to God. Person who's never lacking in zeal, keeping their spiritual fervor, is someone who constantly recognizes the value of sharing and giving as God has given generously to me and graciously to me. We give generously and graciously to others, others who hurt and others who are in need, fellow travelers and and pilgrims and followers of Jesus together in, in this. That is what that looks like person who is never lacking in zeal and keeping their spiritual fervor is someone who is praying faithfully. They are devoted to the relationship that they have with their Heavenly Father. You know, I used to be a prayer list person. I gave it up because the list became my focus versus Abba, who I'm conversing with. So I confess, I've trashed the lists and I'm trying hard to just be with my Heavenly Daddy. How about you? In everything, Paul says, be devoted to that. That will fuel your zeal and your spiritual fervor. Be overwhelmed by the fact that that of all that God has to do in this world, His children are very precious to Him. And He takes time. Now, let me close with what I think is the key in all of this. It's assumed it's not written specifically into this, but, but it's been building as we have gone through this study together in body life. Anybody want to take a guess at what the theme is that's flowing through this whole teaching on body life, on life together? We don't do this alone! None of this stuff we are called to do by ourselves. We do it together. We encourage one another. We strengthen one another. We're there for one another. We hope and we pray for one another. 
We make sure that the life drill course happens and we encourage one another to go to the lifeboat drill. And then we help one another get into the lifeboat. It's all about together. Did you notice that in this time together, there was maybe a little more scripture in terms of specific readings and texts and reminders? That is our source. How do I encourage you? Oh, buck up. Things are going to get better. That might be a lie. You know, you must have done something awful in your life and God's punishing you. That is just outright stupid. But we say dumb things because our advice is not informed by Scripture. And, and here's the thing. I, I, can't, I can't necessarily understand all of the truths that Scripture gives to me. You can't either, but we encourage one another with the truth of what Scripture says because that is where the character of God is revealed to us and He is our hope. Scripture needs to be our source of encouragement and conversation with one another. read the story this week of a pastor who was struggling big time with the divorce of his parents after 35 years of marriage. He was frustrated. He was concerned about their reputation. And he was concerned about his own reputation as a result of their divorce. And he was sharing these concerns with a friend. And he writes this. says, my friend said something remarkable. He could see that I was trapped in the prison of why. I was banging my head against the bars and he said, listen to me. The why is none of your concern. This is not your burden to fix or figure out. You are not responsible for your parents' relationship or their reputation or even your own reputation. Those are in God's hands. And His ways are His, not ours. When it comes to God's will, the sooner you get out of the conjecture business, the better. If you don't go to your grave a little confused, then you won't go to your grave trusting God. Painful as it is, this situation gives you an opportunity to show them grace, to love them in their brokenness in a new way, which is precisely what Jesus has done for you and continues to do for you. And then he writes this. My friend preached the gospel to me that day, and it made all the difference. Brothers and sisters, we bring the truth of who God is and the truth of his word as he's revealed it to us, into one another's lives. We're in this together. Life in a fallen, broken world is so much better when we're in it together, living according to the source of our truth. So praise to him. Come on up. Prepare us as we, as we respond this morning. Next week, we're going to look a little bit closer at that second bookend. Bless those who persecute you. Boy. That's a bugger. And I can say that because I'm going to have an English son-in-law. That is a bugger. (laughs) Bless those who persecute you. But we've got to see it through the eyes of God's sovereignty and what he is doing in our lives. And it's closely tied to what Paul reminds the Ephesian believers that our battle is never against flesh and blood. It is against principalities and powers and in the high places and the dark places. Flesh and blood always gets used in the battle. But if we're aiming our arrows at people, we're looking at the wrong place. That's where we'll go next Sunday together. Amen.